This morning, if you like, you definitely can follow along in the bulletin. We're going to look at both the gospel reading and the epistle reading uh, close to line by line, not quite for all of the gospel. Uh, that'll be shifting soon. Hopefully within a couple weeks, we're going to have our new pew Bibles. And shortly after that, we will stop printing the text every week in order to save on some paper costs for the office, among other things. But this will give you an opportunity to pull out your Bible personally, bring it with you, or to use these new pew Bibles uh, when we get into texts and start looking at it during the sermon. So today, uh, Matthew chapter 16, we're going to kind of fly over the end of the story about the feeding of the 4,000. We have been around Jesus feeding people with bread in wild places for weeks now. Uh, and this is because the lectionary that we're looking at right now is seeing how everything else that's going on around Jesus is tied to these, these two stories where he's bringing bread from heaven to the people, and especially the Jews first, but certainly then the Greeks as well. So this picture of Jesus, the bread from heaven for all, as our Lenten walk, as he prepares to go to the cross, it's, it's, it's very nice just to have behind everything else we're looking at in the text. But today we're going to focus on what happens after he feeds the 4,000. And it's not just that he tells his disciples to be aware of something and they get confused, but specifically, what is he getting at? So we're going to spend a little time on why are they confused, and then we're going to try to talk about the real point of it. This will pick up then uh, in chapter uh, 16, verse 5, where he says, Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they're across the water, they had forgotten to take bread. Right. So here's our setup. They have, they have no food, which doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but, but it is. You know, you're moving around. Where are you going to get it? And Jesus then decides to teach them. And he says, take heed, watch out, look out, he says, and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And from here then, they think it's about not having bread with them. And I've always thought, goodness gracious, what morons, right? And it's really easy to like kind of look down on them a little bit. Remember that for the Jew, um, leaven is sort of part of their religious custom, though, like whether or not the bread has leaven in it, you can't just buy bread anywhere. You know, it, you, you have to have kosher food. So, like, there's some of that going on here probably in their head. They're not so far out of left field, right? Although he will say to them, like, how do you not know what I'm talking about? That's sort of the lesson I want us to get to. He goes through it. You know, you have little faith. This is verse 8. That's the same thing he called Peter in the water. Remember, Peter steps out of the boat, starts to sink. Little faith. It's, it's a term of endearment from Jesus. It isn't really meant to scoff, although it is sort of putting us in our place, really. You, know, you have little faith. Why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? And I, I don't think we should take this as Jesus saying that reasoning among ourselves is always wrong. But... History can teach us pretty clearly that reason is not sufficient to answer all things and can be quite cold and destructive even in the wrong places. So, you know, he, he really is asking, though, why do you look to yourselves for the answer? If you don't understand what God said, why do you think by talking to yourselves you're going to figure it out? See here the problem? Yeah. 
Uh, whereas he's right there. He's the one with the answers they, they could ask. And he, he talks about the food, right? You don't understand. I can do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. And let's just jump straight to the Lord's Supper from that. <laughs> yeah? When Jesus wants to give you his body and blood risen from the dead into your mouth to eat and drink miraculously for the sake of faith alone, uh, he can. Now, don't you remember what he did with the 4,000 people and the 5,000 people? I mean, why can't he do what he wants to do with bread? But his point here, again, is how do you not understand that I'm talking about spiritual things? That's what he says to them, right? How do you not understand I'm not talking about what you're going to go do? I'm talking about how you believe. And then he gives us these names again. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay, so let's, let's back off and look at leaven um, for a second too. And then we'll come to these two names that I want to drive home for you as two ways of being that you don't have to be. Huh? But the leaven idea first, I mentioned already how it was part of Jewish culture and custom. This has to do with the Exodus and, uh, and, uh, and all this, uh, the Passover. Um, but also... Uh, leaven as a as a thing, yeast, right? Uh, it's a bacteria of sorts. We use it to bake. Why? Well, it causes a chemical reaction that releases a lot of gas as the the the, the yeast eats the sugar in the food, and it makes the bread taste good. I mean, anyone who who likes bread likes yeasty bread usually, right? There's a, there's a reason for that. Um, but the bigger idea like at the heart of all of this is just this. If you have a, a batch of flour and you just take a smidge and a leaven and you put it in that flour, it's going to impact the entire thing. You can't keep it out of the rest of the flour. There's no way to just kind of raise part of the loaf. Right? And so this then becomes an example of both good and evil, actually, in the Bible. Often evil. Often it's an example of evil. Evil is like leaven. That is, once it's in, it's in. So don't put it in. It's kind of the answer to that, right? Um, but Jesus doesn't end around on this with the kingdom of God at one point in a parable. And he makes it pretty clear that the kingdom of God is like leaven put into a loaf and it spreads and you can't do anything to stop it. So, so good is as addictive and compellingly changing as evil is. They both operate like leaven though. So once it goes in, it's going to do what it does. And the point of this would be, don't put in the leaven that's going to do what the Pharisees and Sadducees would have you do. Don't believe what they would tell you to believe. And what's that? Um, we could spend, I haven't done the work for it, but I could have gone and, and, and we could do a good hour you know, on, on Second Temple Judaism, you know, the era that Jesus lived during. So different than ours. All the cultural assumptions. You know, atheism doesn't even exist. You know? It's not even a thing. I didn't scoff you out of the room. You know, it's just such a different place. People are going for health crises to like hot baths, you know, so the angels can help. It's just a different world. In this world, these Pharisees and Sadducees are two strong political contingents. They're not quite Democrats and Republicans because they're not nearly as in charge, actually. Um, but they're more like, I don't know, if you can imagine some group of uh, racially uh, tied together and yet hating each other uh, 
power leaders among a larger group in a city. But they're, they have their own city, but the country is not really theirs. <laughs> but it was, but it's not anymore. Uh, and, and they're both inheritors of what was. And what was, the Sadducees, they kind of, they got the good kicks out of it. They got the land. They got the, the, the taxes. They got the ability to kind of, we, the invaders are in charge, but my table's full. So I love God. This is great. You know, God says I'm a priest. He's got his temple. The people bring the food. My table's full. The people are fine. Well, that's all good, Sadducees, okay? Uh, that's their political status. Uh, the Pharisees are in a completely different place. The Pharisees hate this. They want this over. They're almost zealots. They're almost ready to go to war, and people who listen to them will become zealots and go to war, but they're like, no, don't go to war. Just be perfect. Once we all get it in line, we're going to win. And they believe that with every ounce of their being. I mean, Paul's going to other cities to kill people. That's how much he believes it. And they're not entirely wrong in the sense that, in the sense that they're the inheritors of the Maccabean revolts, which did see God give them freedom under government that they didn't even have, didn't even have to win with the sword at times. So it's not as though every Pharisee out there is the worst guy in the world. In fact, the Pharisees are often the ones you would have been like, hey, honey, let's talk to them about you know, a little arranged marriage here because you know, he's a good man. He does his work. He's going to take care of her. They're going to have kids. It's going to be great. Right? Like That's who these people were. They weren't all evil. But the leaven, right? what was their distinctive teaching? And I'm going to go out on a limb and just say what I think rather than, you know, prove it somehow. But, but from a lifetime of this, it's very, very clear. They have two teachings. They're very separate and they're opposite of each other. And the teaching of the Pharisees is, um, do it. You do it. And you better do it. Because if you don't do it, bad on you. That's it. And now, the Sadducees are more like this. You can't do it. I mean, you could try. Go ahead and try all you want. We'll wait and watch. And when you're done, we'll help you. It's, it's going to be like this. There's nothing you can do. It's okay, though. It's okay for it to not be that great. It's okay. Yeah. But you can't. You can't. You can't do it. You can't change it. No. So, so you have, uh, in a word, Pharisees, legalism, and Sadducees, cynicism. And Jesus says, watch out for both of those stories. Watch out for the story that says you have to do all of it. And watch out for the story that says you can't do anything. And this is an interesting thing to bring into a discussion of salvation. Uh, because obviously, since we're saved by grace through faith, God is the one who's going to do all of the saving. But does that mean that, that you're going to do nothing and that would be the leaven of the Sadducees at work there. They would take something like the gospel of free grace and salvation under Jesus Christ and turn it into a licentious excuse to just kind of live your whatever American life now and store it for yourself and die happy, I hope. That's a pretty ugly thing, really. Yeah. The power of Jesus warning here that if we remove these two stories from us, that you have to do it and you can't do it, is that you're actually just free after that. You're just free. You're limited to what God will let you do. And you'll find that God has set in place many good things 
for you to do. And he not only will let you, he wants you to, will empower you to, and will chase you into heaven with it. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the antidote to this leaven of legalism and cynicism that is ransacking America. It's certainly throughout our entertainment culture. It's either this diet or no other diet, and I hate you if you disagree. <laughs> it's amazing, right? Or it's do whatever you want. The world's falling apart. You know, who cares? You know, let's go watch sports. Those two things are just, there's no hope. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is filled with hope. As you turn your way to Romans chapter 10 to get some very specifics on the gospel, um, and it's in the bulletin there for you. Uh, a word on, on the word gospel. We've, we've talked about this before. You know, good news is what it literally means. Greek, euangelion or euangelion. You hear the word evangelism in English. That comes from this word. Euangelion is evangelion. Uh, and it means to bring good news in a very specific way. And in the past, I've shared that this is like a soldier running after a battle and saying, you know, we've won, we've won. And everybody hears that. And that's, that's true. It, it, that's, that's the Greek usage. Um, but it, it has an even stronger connotation that I was made aware of just this last week. I didn't know this, so I'm glad to share it with you now. Um, the stronger connotation in the Roman world. And it had a lot to do with Roman conquest. It's a very specifically Roman government word. And it's the word they would use as they would send their initial vanguard out to meet your, what, your city that's in the far east and thinks it's independent. They send this vanguard, and the vanguard comes with the gospel of Rome. And here's the gospel of Rome. You're going to have running water. You're going to have paved roads. There will not be crime. That's the gospel of Rome. By the way, if you don't like the gospel, we're going to kill you all. So, it's good news. Now, Jesus comes along and is like, well, I got one. Well, I got one. And Paul is going to be very clear about what this one is here in Romans chapter 10. Romans is beautiful. You know that. We've gone through it before. Um, this section is just flush with hope in what it means to be church. Uh, starting with verse 8, it says, But what does it say? That's a reference to the argument before. Remember, maybe 9 and 10 and 11, he's also dealing with the question, Can Jews too be saved? And, and the answer is yes, through Jesus. Yeah. And so there's a lot of Old Testament referencing going on here to try to prove his points. When he says, what does it say then here in verse 8, that it is the scripture he's been talking about, right? He's saying, so what does the Bible say about this again? And that's a transition moment in a larger argument. Yeah? But now he's bringing us to what does the Bible say? Yeah? It says, quote, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. So he quotes the Old Testament to tell you that the, the, the God Almighty has said in his word that he's going to put this word not simply on a book or on a wall or some stone tablets. He's going to put it inside of you. He's going to write it on your heart in such a way that it will, I mean, if it's written on your heart, it's going to come out of your mouth. That is a fact. If it's not on your heart, you're never going to say it. 
Someone can tell you to believe it all they want. You believe this. If it's not in your heart, you're never going to say it. Sports will tell you this right away. You're a fan. You go and you go against the opposite team and they score. You're not going to cheer. It's not on your heart. Why would you ever? You'd be upset. Like Your heart tells you what you think. It's wise to listen to it so you'll know what you think. I don't suggest you always follow it. It's stupid sometimes. Uh, stupid heart. Uh, but, but, okay. God has chosen as his good news that he is going to not give you running water, but put his word in your heart. So that your heart will become in line with his truth and his goodness. And that's, again, just... Paul's just saying that at the start of his little piece here, right? What does is, what is the scripture say that the word's going to be inside of you? And then he says, that is the word of faith which we preach. So he's saying that the scriptures exist in order to be in your mind and heart as something believed, right? And that's what faith is. Faith is to trust what the scriptures have said. So here this morning, I'm suggesting... Trust the scriptures when they say you're supposed to trust the scriptures. That might sound like a roundabout argument, but no, it's a starting point is what it is. It's a starting point. And you got to start somewhere. Trust the scriptures when they say trust the scriptures. And then trust the scriptures that when they're in your heart, they're going to change your mouth. From there, can you imagine what happens in the world when your mouth speaks the word of God instead of just your opinion all the time? This isn't just about how you can kind of go home and make ends meet. This is about how you are a light in the darkness of a dying age when the word of God is inside of you. And that's what scripture says is going to happen. So I suggest you get used to it. Start to pray that you understand it. Act on purpose. Huh? The word of faith which we preach. The way it goes in is you hear it. Yeah, That, and here's what you hear, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Good old-fashioned you know, revival preaching this. We can debate this text too because we do. What does it mean? Does it mean that if you make a decision for Jesus, now you're really saved? And if you haven't yet made a decision for Jesus, pray the sinner's prayer, given your heart to him, you don't really have faith? Some some might use it that way, and and maybe they use it to bring people to faith sometimes even. There is something here to be sure about, like, have you not confessed with your mouth, Jesus? Have you never spoken out loud, Jesus, save me? I mean, if you haven't, I'd suggest you try it. We shouldn't just do it once. We should do it all the time. It's wonderful to have a God who listens to you. He hears your cry. Use his name. So there's that. But there is also this just powerful underlying fact. This is not about conversion. This is about the reality of your certainty where you stand with God. That when Jesus is on your lips, that means God is in your heart. And that means you are saved today from whatever today is. It doesn't mean the sword won't pierce your heart, but it might mean you stick out your chest for it. Because you're going to know who you are when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe God raised him from the dead. It's, it's that simple then. So let's pause here for a moment. How do you know you're a Christian? Now there's, there's more than one answer to this really. And Lutherans have a really beautiful one. You're baptized. 
If you've been baptized, Jesus says you're a Christian. So I suggest you trust him on that, right? You can argue if you want, but, but he says, I baptize you. So like, take it, right? But what about if you haven't been baptized yet? Right? Uh, what if you're one of those traditions where they won't baptize you until you're 16? All you get is the gospel on the internet. <laughs> you know? What then? Well, don't worry about it. I mean, baptism isn't there to make you afraid that you don't have it. That's, that's not what is, uh-oh, until you're baptized, Jesus doesn't really know. It's, it's not like that at all. That's so stupid. And really, the, the, I, I've said this before, there's like this magic stick version of baptism that Lutherans really do fall into. We, we treat it like it's a magic stick. Like we're going to get the kid the magic stick and then we ignore the faith after that. No, he'll be fine. He has the magic stick now. You know, it's, it's really not what it's for. Baptism is there to mark us so that we know we're not them. All those people driving by, you ever watch them? Can you see them? They're all driving by on Sunday. Now, some of them are baptized, some are not, but they're not in church right now. We're baptized so we know who we are, that we belong to Jesus. When you confess, you believe Jesus has risen from the dead, guess what? Like, you belong to Jesus. So, so if you're not baptized, yet, get baptized. They go together. There's not a reason to set them against each other, but that's why I'm trying to emphasize, now that you're baptized and you don't get to do it again, how about focus on confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord as a regular practice in your life? Say it to yourself, say it to your neighbors. Right? Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. The result of this, huh? the result of believing is that God's goodness is being poured into you. And it's going to only create more good so that even the evil that's around you, you can't get away from, you're now the leaven that's invading it. You're the leaven now. You're the good leaven invading the world. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. What a powerful promise. Shame is like my greatest fear, I think. On a daily basis, I try to avoid it at all costs, and I often cannot. To believe then that my prayers will never be put to shame. To know that the God who made Israel cross the Red Sea and brought them back from Babylon by Cyrus's hand, the God who is Jesus, who walked on water but did much more, went into the grave and came out again, and that because of him, I will not be put to shame on that last day. That judgment day is good enough for me. And when I hear, and I hear it, about what I don't do, and it doesn't have to be you. You got your own versions of these stories too. Other people saying, you don't, you do, you don't, you do. Judgment day. You're sitting there saying, oh, but I did. I tried so hard. Stop. Jesus knows. Jesus knows. He knows you tried so hard. You don't have to tell yourself that anymore. Judgment day, will, it'll be okay. They misunderstood. They won't be put to shame either in Christ. We can work toward peace. It's a completely different way of living. It's a holy spirit. He goes on in verse 12. You know, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Yeah. The dividing wall of hostility between the races has been torn down by the good news of Jesus Christ for those who believe it. Yeah. The same Lord is over all, rich to all who call upon him. For another quote from the Old Testament, whoever calls on the name of Jesus Christ, it says the Lord there in the Greek, but it's Jesus we're talking about. Whoever calls on him shall be saved. So call on him in every trouble. Pray, praise, and give thanks. And then let's take a moment to see how verses 14 through 17 are, they're potent. They're about the church. They're about pastors, but they're not. They're about you. 
How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Nobody can believe without the word of God revealing Jesus to them. It's a fact. So if we want more people to believe in Jesus, we must speak of Jesus more. No one will hear otherwise. How shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? Huh? And so to learn to speak of Christ, to train yourself to speak of Christ. And by this, you know, you're, you're just a single person. I mean, pray the Psalter out loud in Jesus' name. Watch it change your world. You'll be the voice that's heard. And how shall they hear without a preacher? That's just it. Whenever you speak Jesus' name, you hear. Now the angels hear. Those around you hear. Now the verse is also going to be about how can they preach unless they are sent. So ultimately, there must be an assembly and there must be a voice that stands up and says, the word of God says this. And that indeed is what this is about. If we want other churches, we don't just want to be the only congregation there is, then we must believe some of our best young men we must send away to plant churches and to be preachers. This text is about that too. I just don't want it to go past you that it's your voice where you are today that is the light and the salt of the kingdom of God, not mine. You're here today so I can remind you that you speak for God in Jesus' name, according to the scriptures. And when you do, the angels and the devils and the world all have to listen. As it is written then of you, How beautiful the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Verse 16, we're at the end here, but I'll jump these last two verses. Verse 16, uh, he says, they have not all obeyed the gospel. You hear some of Paul and Isaiah complaining. I I talked, I talked, not everyone believed, not everyone will. Um, But verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That is the center of how the gospel works. That is why as Lutherans, we talk about word and sacrament ministry, but it is as simple as, well, Jesus loves you because the Bible says so. Remember that in the name of Jesus.